0: Chapter One, Section Two of *The Poverty of Philosophy* by Karl Marx. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Traven Leroy, Ottawa, Canada. Chapter One, Section Two, Constituted or Synthetic Value. Quote, value Salable is the cornerstone of the economic edifice. Quote. Constituted value is the cornerstone of the system of economic contradictions. What then is this constituted value? Which constitutes all Mr. Proudhon's discovery in political economy? Utility being admitted, labor is the source of value. The measure of labor is time. The relative value of products is determined by the labor time it is necessary to employ in order to produce them. Price is the monetary expression of the relative value of a product. Finally, the constituted value of the product is simply the value which is constituted by the labour time embodied in it. Just as Adam Smith discovered the division of labour in the same way Mr. Proudhon claims to have discovered constituted value. This is not precisely something unheard of, but then it must also be admitted that there is nothing unheard of in any discovery in economic science. Mr. Proudhon, who feels all the importance of his discovery, nevertheless seeks to attenuate its merits. Quote, In order to reassure the reader with regard to his pretensions to originality and to conciliate those whose timidity rends them but little favour to new ideas, End quote. but while admitting that each of his predecessors has done something for the appreciation of value, he is compelled to loudly proclaim that it is to him that the greater part the lion's share belongs. The synthetical idea of value was vaguely perceived by Adam Smith. But this idea of value was entirely intuitive with Adam Smith. Nevertheless, society does not change its habits on the faith of intuitions. It decides only on the authority of facts. It is necessary that the contradiction should be expressed in a clearer and more sensible manner. J. B. Say was its principal exponent. End quote. There is the whole history of the discovery of synthetic value to Adam Smith, vague intuition, to J. B. Say, contradiction, to Mr. Proudhon the constituent and constituted truth. And let there be no mistake, all the other economists, from Say to Proudhon, have done nothing but wander in the beaten path of contradiction. It is incredible that so many men of sense should for forty years have struggled against such a simple idea. But no, the comparison of values is effected without there being any point of comparison between them and without utility of measure. That is what the economists of the nineteenth century, rather than embrace the revolutionary theory of equality, have resolved to maintain towards and against all. What will posterity say about it? End quote. Volume one page sixty eight. Posterity, so brusquely apostrophized, will commence by being puzzled about this chronology. It must necessarily ask, but were not Ricardo and his school economists of the nineteenth century? The system of Ricardo, which set forth the principle that the relative value of commodities depends exclusively on the quantity of labor required for their production, appeared in 1817. Ricardo is the chief of a whole school which reigned in England since the Restoration. The Ricardian theory sums up, rigorously, pitilessly, all the doctrine of the English middle class, itself the type of the modern bourgeoisie. What will posterity say about it? it will not say that Mr. Proudhon did not know Ricardo, because he speaks of him, deals with his theory at considerable length, returns to it constantly, and ends by saying that it is rubbish. If ever posterity concerns itself with the subject, it will say, perhaps, that Mr. Proudhon, fearing to shock the anglophobia of his readers, has preferred to make himself the editor responsible for the ideas of Ricardo. However, that may be, it will find very curious that mr proudhon gave as a revolutionary theory of the future that which ricardo had scientifically explained as the theory of existing society of bourgeois society and that he thus took for the solution of the contradiction between utility and exchange value what ricardo and his school had a long time before him presented as the scientific formula of a single side of that contradiction of exchange value But let us put posterity altogether on one side and confront Mr. Proudhon with his predecessor, Ricardo. Here are some passages from the author which sum up his theory of value. It is not utility which is the measure of exchange value, although that quality is absolutely necessary. Volume 1, page 3, Principles of Political Economy. Things, once they are recognized as useful in themselves, Draw their exchange value from two sources, from their scarcity and from the quantity of labor necessary to acquire them. There are some things the value of which depends only on their scarcity. No amount of labor being capable of increasing their quantity, their value cannot fall through their too great abundance. Such are rare statues, pictures, etc. This value depends solely on the faculties, the tastes and the caprice of those desirous of possessing such objects. Volume 1, page 4 and 5. These, however, form but a very small part of the commodities which are constantly exchanged, the greater number of desirable objects being the fruit of industry. They can be multiplied, not only in one country but in many, to an extent to which it is almost impossible to fix any limits, every time that one is willing to employ the industry necessary to create them." Volume one, page five. Quote, when, then, we speak of commodities, of their exchange value, and of the principles which regulate their relative price, we have in view only these commodities, the quantity of which can be increased by the industry of man. The production of which is encouraged by competition and is not prevented by any obstacle. End quote. Volume one, page five. Ricardo quotes Adam Smith, who according to him quote, has defined with great precision the primitive source of all exchange value. End quote. Volume one, chapter five of Smith. And he adds quote, that such must in reality be the basis of exchange value of all things, namely labor time except those which the industry of man cannot multiply at will is a doctrinal point of the highest importance in political economy for there is no source from which have flowed so many errors and out of which have sprung so many diverse opinions in this science as from the vague and indefinite sense attached to the word value volume one, page eight if it is the quantity of labour embodied in an article which regulates its exchange value it follows that every increase in the quantity of labor must necessarily increase the value of the objects upon which it has been employed. In the same way, every reduction in the amount of labor must bring about a reduction in price. End quote. Volume one, page nine. Ricardo afterwards reproaches Smith, one, quote, with having given to value a measure other than labor sometimes the value of wheat, sometimes the quantity of labor which an article would purchase, etc. Volume 1, page 9 and 10 2. Quote, With having admitted the principle without reserve, and have nevertheless restricted its application to the rude and primitive state of society which preceded the accumulation of capital and the ownership of land. Volume 1, page 21 ricardo devotes himself to demonstrating that the ownership of land that is to say rent cannot change the relative value of commodities and that the accumulation of capital exercises only a passing and oscillating influence on the relative values determined by the comparative quantity of labor employed in the production in support of this proposition he formulates his famous theory of rent decomposes capital and comes in the final analysis to find that there is nothing but accumulated labor, he afterwards develops a whole theory of wages and profit and demonstrates that wages and profit rise and fall in inverse ratio the one to the other, without influencing the relative value of the product. He does not ignore the influence which the accumulation of capitals and the difference in their nature, fixed capital and circulating capital, as well as the rate of wages may exercise on the proportional value of the products. There are indeed the principal problems which occupy Ricardo. Quote, "Every economy of labor," says he, "never fails to reduce the relative value of a commodity, whether this economy be effected in the labor necessary to the manufacture of the article itself or in the labor necessary to the formation of the capital employed in that manufacture." End quote. Volume 1, page 48. Quote, "In consequence, while a day's labor continues to give to one the same quantity of fish and to the other the same of game, the natural rate of the respective prices of exchange will remain the same, whatever may otherwise be the variation in wages and in profit, and in spite of all the effects of the accumulation of capital." End quote. Volume 1, page 32. Quote, We have regarded labour as the foundation of the value of things, and the quantity of labour necessary to their production, as the law which determines the respective quantities of commodities which must be given in exchange for others. But we have not pretended to deny that there may be in the current prices of commodities some accidental and passing deviation from this primitive and natural price. End quote. Volume 1, page 105. Quote, It is the cost of production which regulates in the last analysis the price of things and not, as has been often advanced, the proportion between supply and demand. Volume two, page two fifty three. Lord Lauderdale had developed the variations of exchange value according to the law of supply and demand, or of scarcity and abundance relatively to demand. According to him, the value of a thing would increase when its quantity diminished or demand increased. It would diminish in proportion to the increase of its quantity or to the reduction of demand. Thus the value of anything might change by the operation of eight different causes, namely, four causes appertaining to the thing itself and four causes appertaining to money or any other commodity which served as measure of its value. Here is Ricardo's refutation. The products of which an individual or a company has the monopoly vary in value according to the law which Lord Lauderdale has postulated. They fall in proportion as they are supplied in greater quantity, and they rise with the desire of purchasers to acquire them. Their price has no necessary relation to their natural value. But as to the things which are subject to competition between the sellers and of which the quantity can be increased within reasonable limits, their price depends definitely not upon the state of demand and of supply, but upon the actual costs of production. Volume 2, page 159. We will leave the reader to compare the precise, clear, and simple language of Ricardo with the rhetorical efforts made by Mr. Proudhon in order to arrive at the determination of relative value by labor time. Ricardo shows us that the real movement of bourgeois production, which constitutes value, Mr. Proudhon, making abstraction of his movement, struggles to invent new processes in order to regulate the world according to a professedly new formula, which is only the theoretical expression of the real existing movement so well expounded by Ricardo. Ricardo takes for his point of departure existing society to demonstrate to us how it constitutes value. Mr. Proudhon takes for his point of departure constituted value, in order to constitute a new social world by means of this value. For him, Mr. Proudhon, constituted value must make a circuit and become the constituent for a world already fully constituted according to this mode of valuation. The determination of value by labour time is for Ricardo the law of exchange value. For Mr. Proudhon it is the synthesis of use value and exchange value. The theory of value of Ricardo is the scientific interpretation of actual economic life. The theory of value of Mr. Proudhon is the utopian interpretation of the theory of Ricardo. Ricardo proves the truth of his formula by drawing his conclusions from all the economic relations and in explaining by this means all the phenomena, even those which at first sight appear to contradict it, such as rent, the accumulation of capitals, and the connection between wages and profits. That is precisely what makes of his theory a scientific system. Mr. Proudhon, who has rediscovered this formula of Ricardo's by means of entirely arbitrary hypotheses, is compelled afterwards to seek for isolated economic facts which he tortures and falsifies, in order to make them serve as examples, applications already existing, of the beginnings of the realization of his regenerating idea. See our section 3, Applications of Constituted Value. Let us now pass on to the conclusions which Mr. Proudhon draws from value constituted by labor time. A given quantity of labor equals the product created by the same quantity of labor. Every day's labor is worth another day's labor. That is to say, in equal quantity, the labor of one is worth the labor of another. There is no qualitative difference. Given an equal quantity of labor, the product of one will exchange for the product of another. All men are wage workers and equal wages pay for an equal time of labor. Perfect equality presides over the exchange. Are these conclusions the natural rigorous consequences of value constituted or determined by labor time? If the relative value of a commodity is determined by the quantity of labor required to produce it, It naturally follows that the relative value of labour or wages must be equally determined by the quantity of labour which is necessary to produce the wages. The wage, that is to say the relative value or price of labour, is then determined by the labour time which is necessary to produce all that is required for the subsistence of the worker. Quote, Reduce the cost of manufacturing hats, and eventually the price will fall to the new natural price, although the demand may be doubled, troubled, or quadrupled. Reduce the cost of subsistence of men by reducing the natural price of the necessary food and clothing, and you will see wages eventually fall, although the demand for hands may have considerably increased Ricardo volume two page two fifty three Certainly the language of Ricardo is most cynical. To put in the same category the cost of manufacturing hats and the cost of subsistence of man is to transform man into a hat. The cynicism is in the things themselves and not in the words which express these things. Some French writers, such as M. M. Drose, Blanqui, Rosy, and others, have given themselves the innocent satisfaction of proving their superiority to the English economists by seeking to observe the etiquette of humanitarian language. If they reproach Ricardo and his school with their cynical language, it is because they are annoyed at seeing economic conditions exposed in all their crudity, at seeing the mysteries of the bourgeoisie betrayed. Let us sum up. Labour being itself a commodity measures itself as such by the labour time necessary to produce this labour commodity. And what is necessary to produce the labour commodity? Exactly that amount of labour time which is necessary to produce the objects indispensable to the constant subsistence of labor that is to say to enable the workers to live and to propagate his race the natural price of labor is nothing but the minimum wage if the current price of wages rises above the natural price it is precisely because the law of value postulated in principle by mr proudhon finds itself counterbalanced by the consequences of the variations in the relation between supply and demand But the minimum wage is, nevertheless, the center towards which the current price of wages constantly gravitates. Thus, relative value, measured by labor time, is fatally the formula of the modern slavery of the worker, instead of being, as Mr. Proudhon would have it, the revolutionary theory of the emancipation of the proletariat. Let us now see how many cases the application of labour time as the measure of value is incompatible with the existing antagonism of classes and the unequal distribution of the product between the immediate worker and the possessor of accumulated labour. Let us suppose a certain product, for instance linen. This product as such embodies a definite quantity of labour. This quantity of labour will be the same, no matter what may be the reciprocal positions of those whose labour has combined to create this product. Let us take another product, cloth, which has exactly the same quantity of labour as the linen. If there is an exchange of these products, there is an exchange of equal quantities of labour. In exchanging these equal quantities of labour, we do not change the reciprocal position of the producers any more than we change something in the situation of the workers and manufacturers among them to say that this exchange of products measured by time has for its consequence the equal remuneration of all the producers is to suppose that equality of participation has existed anterior to the exchange when the exchange of the cloth for the linen has been accomplished the producers of the cloth will share in the linen in precisely the same proportions as they before shared in the cloth the illusion of mr proudhon proceeds from his taking as a necessary consequence what at the most can be nothing but a gratuitous assumption let us go further does labor time as the measure of value suppose at least that the days are equivalent and that the day of one is worth the day of another no assuming for a moment that the day of a jeweler is worth three days of a weaver All changes in the value of jewels relatively to the value of woven stuffs must always, apart from the passing effects of the oscillation of supply and demand, have for cause a reduction or an increase on one side or the other of the time employed in production, Let three days of labor of different workers in the proportion of one, two, three. And all change in the relative value of their products will be a change in this proportion of one, two, three. Thus, value may be measured by labor time in spite of the inequality of value of different days of labor. But to apply a similar measure, it is necessary for us to have a comparative scale of the different days of labor. It is competition which establishes this scale. Is your hour of labor equal to mine? That is a question debated and settled by competition. Competition, according to an American economist, determines how many days of simple labor are contained in a day of complex labor does not this reduction of days of complex labor to days of simple labor suppose that simple labor is itself taken as a measure of value the single quantity of labor serving as the measure of value supposes in its turn that simple labor has become the pivot of industry it supposes that laborers are equalized by the subordination of man to the machine or by the extreme division of labor that men are effaced before labor That the balance of the pendulum has become the exact measure of the relative activity of two workers as it is of the speed of two locomotives. Then it is not necessary to say that the hour of one man is worth the hour of another man, but rather that a man of one hour is worth another man of an hour. Time is everything, man is nothing. He is no more than the carcass of time. There is no more question of quality. Quantity alone decides everything, hour for hour, day for day. But this equalization of labor is not the work of Mr. Proudhon's eternal justice. It is solely the accomplishment of modern industry. In the automatic workshop, the labor of one worker is scarcely distinguished in anything from the labor of another worker. The workers cannot distinguish between themselves except by the quantity of time they work. Nevertheless, the quantitative difference becomes, at a certain point of view, qualitative inasmuch as the time given to work depends in part on purely material causes such as physical constitution age and sex in part on purely negative moral qualities such as patience impassibility assiduity lastly if there is a difference of quality in the labour of the workers it is at most a degree of the last quality which is far from being a distinctive speciality Such is, in the final analysis, the state of things of modern industry. It is on this already realized equality of automatic labor that Mr. Proudhon bases his plan of equalization, which he proposes to realize universally in the time to come. All the equalitarian consequences which Mr. Proudhon draws from the doctrine of Ricardo rest upon a fundamental error. That is, that he confounds the value of commodities measured by the quantity of labor embodied in them with the value of commodities measured by the value of labor. If these two methods of measuring the value of commodities were confounded in one, we might say indifferently, the relative value of any commodity is measured by the quantity of value embodied in it. Or it is measured by the quantity of labor which it is able to purchase. Or, again, it is measured by the quantity of labor which will purchase it it is necessary indeed that it should be thus the value of labour could no more serve as a measure of value than the value of any other commodity some examples will serve to more fully explain the point above if a quarter of wheat cost two days labour instead of one it would have double its primitive value but it would not put in motion a double quantity of labour because it would contain no more nutritive matter than before Thus the value of the wheat measured by the quantity of labor employed to produce it would have doubled, but measured either by the quantity of labor that it could buy or by the quantity of labor by which it could be bought, it would be far from having doubled. On the other hand, if the same labor produced double the amount of clothing as before, the relative value would fall to one half, but nevertheless this double quantity of clothing will not thereby be reduced to command only half the quantity of labor nor could the same quantity of labor command double the quantity of clothing as the half of the clothing would continue to render to the workers the same service as before thus to determine the relative value of commodities by the value of labor is contrary to economic facts it is to move in a vicious circle to determine relative value by a relative value which in its turn needs to be determined it is beyond doubt that mr proudhon confounds the two measures measure by the labor time necessary to the production of a commodity, and the measure by the value of labor. The labor of every man, says he, will produce the labor which it embodies. Thus, according to him, a certain quantity of labor embodied in a product equals in value the remuneration of the worker, that is to say, the value of labor. It is, once more, the same reason which leads him to confound the cost of production with wages. Quote, what are wages? They are the price of the amount of wheat, etc., the integral price of all things. End quote. Let us go further still. Quote, wages are the proportionality of the elements which compose wealth. End quote. What are wages? They are the value of labor. Adam Smith takes as measures of value sometimes the labor time necessary to the production of a commodity, sometimes the value of labor ricardo exposed this error by showing clearly the disparity between these two methods of measuring mr Proudhon enhances the error of adam smith by identifying the two things which the latter had only placed in juxtaposition it is in order to find the just proportion in which the workers should share in the products or in other terms to determine the relative value of labor that mr Proudhon seeks for a measure of the relative value of commodities to determine the measure of the relative value of commodities he can think of nothing better than of giving as the equivalent of a certain quantity of labour the sum of the products that it has created which amounts to supposing that the whole of society consists solely of direct workers receiving for wages their own produce in the second place he sets forth as a fact the equality of the days of different workers to sum up he seeks the measure of the relative value of commodities in order to discover the equal remuneration of the workers, and, he assumes, as an already established fact, equality of wages in order to discover the relative value of commodities. What admirable dialectic! Say and the economists who have followed him have observed that labour being itself subject to valuation, a commodity like any other, in fact, to take it for a principle and the efficient cause of value, would be to move in a vicious circle. These economists, if they will permit me to say so, have shown by that a prodigious inattention. Labour is called value, not as being a commodity itself, but in view of the value supposed to be potentially embodied in it. The value of labour is a figurative expression, an anticipation of the cause and the effect. It is a fiction of the same kind as the productivity of capital. Labour produces, capital denotes value labor like liberty is a vague and indefinite thing by nature but it becomes qualitatively defined by its object that is to say it becomes a reality by its product let us hear old the price of commodities says he must always be proportioned there being only this intelligence which can make them live together to constantly give and receive reciprocally see the continual exchangeability of mr birth to one another as wealth then is only this constant intercourse between man and man between métier and métier it is a fearful blindness to seek for the cause of poverty elsewhere than in the cessation of such commerce brought about by the derangement in the proportion of prices dissertation sur la nature des richesses listen also to a modern economist quote, a great law which must be applied to production is the law of proportion which can alone preserve the continuity of value the equivalent must be guaranteed all the nations have essayed at different epochs by means of numerous commercial regulations and restrictions to realize up to a certain point this law of proportion but egoism inherent in the nature of man has forced him to overthrow all this regulation regime a proportional production is the realization of the entire truth of the science of social economy. End quote. W. Atkinson, Principles of Political Economy, London, eighteen forty, page one seventy to one ninety five. Foui, troja. This true proportion between supply and demand, which again begins to become the object of so many vows, has long ceased to exist. It has died of old age. It was only possible in the epoch in which the means of production were limited, and in which exchange only took place within very narrow limits. With the birth of the great industry, this just proportion disappeared, and production was fatally constrained to pass in a perpetual succession, through the vicissitudes of prosperity, depression, crisis, stagnation, new prosperity, and so on in succession." Those who, like Sismondi, would return to the just proportion of production while conserving the existing basis of society, are reactionary, since, to be consistent, they must also desire to re-establish all the other conditions of past times. What was it which maintained production in just proportion, or nearly so? It was the demand which governed the supply which preceded it. Production followed consumption step by step. The great industry, forced by the very instruments of which it disposed to produce on an ever-increasing scale, could not wait for the demand. Production preceded consumption. The supply forced the demand. In existing society, in the industry based on individual exchanges, the anarchy of production, which is the source of so much misery, is at the same time the source of all progress. Thus, of two things, one— Either you would have the just proportions of past centuries with the means of production of our epoch, in which case you are at once a reactionary and a utopian, or you would have progress without anarchy, in which case in order to conserve productive forces you must abandon individual exchanges. Individual exchanges accord only with the small industry of past centuries and its corollary of just proportion, or with the great industry and all its train of misery and anarchy. After all, the determination of value by labor time, that is to say the formula which Mr. Proudhon has given us as the regenerating formula of the future, is then only the scientific expression of the economic relations of existing society, as Ricardo has clearly and definitely demonstrated it long before Mr. Proudhon. But at least the equalitarian application of this formula belongs to Mr. Proudhon, Is it he who has first thought of reforming society by transforming all men into immediate workers, exchanging quantities of equal labor? Is it indeed for him to make to the communists, these people innocent of all knowledge of political economy, these obstinately stupid men, these paradisical dreamers, the reproach of not having found before him this solution of the problem of the proletariat? Whoever is, no matter how little, acquainted with the movement of political economy in England knows that nearly all the socialists of that country have, at different times, proposed the equalitarian application of the Ricardian theory. We may cite to Mr. Proudhon the political economy of Hopkins, William Thompson, an inquiry into the principles of the distribution of wealth, most conductive to human happiness, 1827, T. R. Edmonds, Practical, Moral, and Political Economy, 1828, etc., etc., and we might add pages of etc. We will content ourselves with quoting an English communist. We will reproduce the decisive passage of his remarkable work, Labor's Wrongs and Labor's Remedy, Leeds, 1839, and we will dwell upon it at sufficient length, in the first place, because J. F. Bray is yet but little known in France and further, because we believe we have there found the key of the past, present, and future works of Mr. Proudhon. Quote, The only way to arrive at truth is to go at once to first principles. Let us go at once to the source from whence governments themselves have arisen. By thus going to the origin of the thing, we shall find that every form of government and every social and governmental wrong owes its rise to the existing social system, to the institution of property as it at present exists and that therefore if we would end our wrongs and our miseries at once and for ever the present arrangements of society must be totally subverted and supplanted by those more in accordance with the principles of justice and the rationality of man Quote, by thus fighting them upon their own ground and with their own weapons we shall avoid that senseless clatter respecting visionaries and theorists with which they are so ready to assail all who dare move one step from that beaten track which by authority has been pronounced to be the only right one before the conclusions arrived at by such a course of proceeding can be overthrown the economists must unsay or disprove those established truths and principles on which their own arguments are founded J. F. Bray, page 17 and 41. It is labor alone which bestows value. Every man has an undoubted right to all that his honest labor can procure him. When he thus appropriates the fruits of his labor, he commits no injustice upon any other human being, for he interferes with no other man's right of doing the same with the produce of his labor. All these ideas of superior and inferior, of master and man, may be traced to the neglect of first principles and to the consequent rise of inequality of possessions and such ideas will never be eradicated nor the institutions founded upon them be subverted so long as this inequality is maintained men have hitherto blindly hoped to remedy the present unnatural state of things and to institute equality of rights and laws by removing one rich tyrant and setting up another by destroying existing inequality and leaving untouched the cause of the inequality but it will shortly be seen that it is not in the nature of any mere governmental change to afford permanent relief that misgovernment is not a cause but a consequence that is not the creator but the created that it is the offspring of inequality of possessions and that inequality of possessions is inseparably connected with our present social system J.F. Bray, page 33, 36, and 37. Quote, Not only are the greatest advantages, but strict justice also, on the side of a system of equality, every man is a link, and an indispensable link, in the chain of effects, the beginning of which is but an idea, and the end, perhaps, the production of a piece of cloth. Thus, although we may entertain different feelings towards the several parties, it does not follow that one should be better paid for his labor than another. The inventor will ever receive, in addition to his just pecuniary reward, that which genius only can obtain from us, the tribute of our admiration. End quote. Quote, from the very nature of labor and exchange, strict justice not only requires that all exchangers should be mutually, but that they should likewise be equally benefited. Men have only two things which they can exchange with each other, namely, labour, and the produce of labour. Therefore, let them exchange as they will. They merely give, as it were, labour for labour. If a just system of exchanges were acted upon, the value of all articles would be determined by the entire cost of production, and equal values should always exchange for equal values. If, for instance, it takes a hatter one day to make a hat, and a shoemaker the same time to make a pair of shoes, supposing the material used by each to be of the same value, and they exchange these articles with each other, they are not only mutually but equally benefited. The advantage derived by either party cannot be a disadvantage to the other, as each has given the same amount of labour, and the materials made use of by each were of equal value. But if the hatter should obtain two pair of shoes for one hat, time and value of material being as before the exchange would clearly be an unjust one the hatter would defraud the shoemaker of one day's labor and were the former to act thus in all his exchanges he would receive for the labor of half a year the products of some other person's whole year therefore the gain of the first would necessarily be a loss to the last we have heretofore acted upon no other than this most unjust system of exchanges the workmen have given the capitalist the labour of a whole year in exchange for the value of only half a year and from this and not from the assumed inequality of bodily and mental powers in individuals has arisen the inequality of wealth and power which at present exists around us it is an inevitable condition of inequality of exchanges of buying at one price and selling at another that capitalists shall continue to be capitalists and working men be working men, the one a class of tyrants and the other a class of slaves. The whole transaction, therefore, plainly shows that the capitalists and proprietors do no more than give the working man for his labor of one week a part of the wealth which they obtained from him the week before, which just amounts to giving him nothing for something. The whole transaction, therefore, between the producer and the capitalist is a palpable deception, a mere farce. It is, in fact, in thousands of instances, no more than a barefaced, though a legalized robbery End quote j f bray page forty five forty eight forty nine and fifty quote The gain of the employer will never cease to be the loss of the employed until the exchanges between the parties are equal, and exchanges never can be equal while society is divided into capitalists and producers the last living upon their labor and the first bloating upon the profit of that labor end quote. Quote, it is plain continues bray that you may establish whatever form of government you will that you may talk of morality and brotherly love no such reciprocity can exist when there are unequal exchanges and inequality of rewards for equal services inequality of exchanges as being the cause of inequality of possessions is the secret enemy that devours us it has been deduced also from a consideration of the intention and end of society not only that all men should labour and thereby become exchangers but that equal values should always exchange for equal values and that as the gain of one man ought never to be the loss of another value should ever be determined by the cost of production but we have seen that, under the present arrangements of society, all men do not labour, that the gain of the capitalist and the rich man is always the loss of the workman, that this result will invariably take place, and the poor man be left entirely at the mercy of the rich man, so long as there is inequality of exchanges, and that equality of exchanges can be insured only under social arrangements in which labour is universal. If exchanges were equal, the wealth of the present capitalists would gradually go from them to the working classes, end quote. Bray, page 51, 52, 53, and 55. Quote, so long as the system of unequal exchanges is tolerated, the producers will be almost as poor and as ignorant as hard-worked as they are at present, even if every governmental burden be swept away and all taxes be abolished nothing but a total change of system unequalizing of labor and exchanges can alter the state of things for the better and ensure men a true equality of rights the producers have but to make an effort and by them must every effort for their own redemption be made and their chains will be snapped asunder forever as an end political equality is a failure as a means also it is a failure where things are of equal value and they are exchanged unequally the gain of one exchanger must ever be the loss of another for every exchange is then simply a transfer and not a sacrifice of labour and wealth thus although under a social system based on equal exchanges a parsimonious man may become rich his wealth will be no more than the accumulated produce of his own labour He may exchange his wealth or he may give it to others, who will exchange it for an equal value of the wealth of other persons. But a rich man cannot continue wealthy for any length of time after he has ceased to labor. Under equality of exchanges, wealth cannot have, as it has now, a procreative and apparently self-generating power, such as replenishes all waste from consumption. For, unless it be renewed by labor, wealth, when once consumed, is given up forever." That which is now called profit and interest cannot exist. As such, in connection with equality of exchanges, for producer and distributor would be alike remunerated, and the sum total of their labor would determine the value of the article created and brought to the hands of the consumer. The principle of equal exchange, therefore, must from its very nature ensure universal labor. End quote. Bray, page 67, 88, 89, 94, 109, and 110 after having rebuted the objections of the economists to communism bray continues thus if a changed character be essential to the success of the social system of community in its most perfect form and if likewise the present system affords no circumstances and no facilities for effecting the requisite change of character and preparing man for the higher and better state desired it is evident that things must remain as they are unless some preparatory steps be discovered and made use of some movement partaking partly of the present and partly of the desired system some intermediate resting place to which society may go with all of its faults and all of its volleys and from which it may move forward imbued with those qualities and attributes without which the system of community and equality cannot as such have existence bray page one thirty four the whole movement would require only cooperation in its simplest form cost of production would in every instance determine value and equal values would always exchange for equal values if one person worked a whole week and another worked only half a week the first would receive double the remuneration of the last but this extra pay of the one would not be at the expense of the other, nor would the loss incurred by the last man fall in any way upon the first. Each person would exchange the wages he individually received for commodities of the same value as his respective wages, and in no case could the gain of one man or one trade be a loss to another man or another trade. The labor of every individual would alone determine his gain and his losses. End quote. Quote, By means of general and local boards of trade, the directors attach to each individual company the quantities of the various commodities which, for consumption, the relative value of each in regard to each other. The number of hands required in various trades and descriptions of labor, and all other matters connected with the production and distribution, could in short time be as easily determined for a nation as for an individual company under the present arrangements as individuals compose families and families towns under the existing system so likewise would they after the joint-stock change had been effected the present distribution of people in towns and villages bad as it is would not be directly interfered with under this joint-stock system every individual would be at liberty to accumulate as much as he pleased and to enjoy such accumulations when and where he might think proper society would be as it were one great joint-stock company composed of an indefinite number of smaller companies all labouring producing and exchanging with each other on terms of the most perfect equality our new system of society by shares which is only a concession made to existing society in order to arrive at communism established in such a way as to admit of individual property in productions in connection with a common property in production powers making every individual dependent on his own exertions and at the same time allowing him an equal participation in every advantage afforded by nature and art is fitted to take society as it is and to prepare the way for other and better changes." End quote. Bray, page 158, one sixty, one 163, 168, 170, and 194. We have only a few words to say in reply to Mr. Bray, who, quite in spite of ourselves, we find to have supplanted Mr. Proudhon inasmuch as Mr. Bray, far from wishing to have the last word of humanity, only proposes such measures as he believes good— for a period of transition between existing society and a system of communism. An hour of the labor of Peter is exchanged for an hour of the labor of Paul. That is the fundamental axiom of Mr. Bray. Suppose Peter has performed 12 hours' work and Paul has only done six. Then Peter will only be able to make with Paul an exchange of six against six. Peter will consequently have six hours' labor remaining. What will he do with these six hours of labor? Either he will do nothing with them, that is to say, he will have worked six hours for nothing, or maybe he will idle six hours in order to equalize matters, or again, and this is his last resource, he will give to Paul these six hours, with which he can do nothing else, into the bargain. Thus, at the end of the account, what has Peter gained on Paul? Some hours of labor? No, he will have gained only some hours of leisure. He will be compelled to be an idler for six hours and for this new right of idleness to be not only accepted but appreciated in the new society it is necessary that the latter should find its highest felicity in laziness and that labor should weigh upon it like a chain from which it must free itself at any cost yet still if these hours of leisure which peter has gained over paul were only a real gain but no paul in beginning by working only six hours arrives by steady and regular labor at the same result as peter only obtains by commencing with an excess of labor each would desire to be paul there would be competition to obtain the position of paul a competition of idleness ah well what has the exchange of equal quantities of labor given us overproduction depreciation overwork followed by an enforced idleness in fine the economic relations such as we see them in existing society, less the competition of labour. But no, we deceive ourselves. There would be still an expedient by which the new society, the society of Peter's and Paul's, could be saved. Peter might eat all alone the product of the six hours of labour which remained to him. But the moment in which there is no more exchanging in order to have a product, There is no longer production in order to exchange and all the supposition of a society founded on exchange and the division of labour falls to the ground we should have saved the equality of exchanges only through the cessation of exchange paul and peter would have arrived at the condition of robinson crusoe then if we imagine all the members of society to be workers The exchange of equal quantities of hours of labour is only possible on condition that we understand beforehand the number of hours necessary to employ in material production, but such an understanding denies individual exchange. We shall still arrive at the same result if we take for a starting point not the distribution of the products created but the act of production. In the great industry Peter is not free to fix for himself the time of his labour because the labour of Peter is nothing without the cooperation of all the Peters and all the Pauls in the establishment. It is this which clearly explains the obstinate resistance of the English manufacturer to the ten hours bill. They knew very well that a reduction of two hours labour given to the women and children would be sure to result in a reduction of the hours of labour of adult men. It is in the nature of the great industry that the hours of labor should be equal for all. That which is today the result of capital and the competition of the workers among themselves will be tomorrow, if you cut off the relation between labor and capital, the effect of an understanding based on the relation of the sum of the productive forces to the sum of existing wants. But such an understanding is the condemnation of individual exchange, and so we arrive once more at our first result. In principle there is no exchange of products, but exchange of the labours which cooperate in production. The mode of exchange of the products depend upon the mode of production of the productive forces. Generally the form of the exchange of products corresponds to the form of production. Change the latter and the former finds itself changed as a consequence." We may also see in the history of society the mode of exchanging products regulated by the method of producing them. Individual exchange also corresponds to a determined method of production, which itself corresponds to the antagonism of classes. Thus there is no individual exchange without the antagonism of classes. But the honest consciences refuse to accept this evidence, so long as one is bourgeois one cannot do other than see in this relation of antagonism a relation of harmony and eternal justice which permits no one to get value at the expense of another for the bourgeois individual exchange can exist without the antagonism of classes for him these are two entirely incompatible things individual exchange as it presents itself to the bourgeois is far from resembling individual exchange as it is in actual practice mr bray makes of the illusion of the honest bourgeois the ideal which he desires to realize in purifying individual exchange in freeing it from all the antagonistic elements he finds in it he believes he has found an equalitarian relation which he desires to see adopted by society mr bray does not see that this equalitarian relation this collective ideal which he wishes to apply to the world is itself nothing but the reflection of the existing world and that it is in consequence quite impossible to reconstitute society on a basis which is only an embellished shadow in proportion as this shadow becomes substance it is seen that this substance far from being the dreamed of transfiguration is nothing but the body of existing society footnote like all other theories this of Mr. Bray has had its partisans who have been deceived by appearances. In London, Sheffield, Leeds, and many other towns in England, have been founded some equitable labor exchange bazaars. These bazaars, after having absorbed considerable capital, have all failed miserably. People have lost the taste for them forever. Let Mr. Proudhon take note. End of, footnote. End of chapter 1, section 2 constituted or synthetic value.